The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is the writer and journalist Ed Caesar, whose new book is called The Moth and the Mountain, a true story of love, war and Everest. Now, the moth is not a butterfly-type moth, but an aeroplane, and Everest, well, we all know about Everest. But this is a story, isn't it, Ed, of a failure rather than a great triumph? It is, I suppose, in absolute terms a failure in that Morris Wilson who is the subject of this book wanted to be the first person to reach the summit of Everest and he does not become the first person to reach the summit of Everest so in that sense it is a failure failure is always much more interesting than success I think in literary terms and he fails in his main objective but in all sorts of other ways Everest was the thing that was going to redeem his broken life. So in some senses, he does get what he wants, but he doesn't get the ultimate thing that he wants, I suppose. No. Well, he is, or at least, you know, until I started reading your book, I didn't know who the hell he was. He seems to have been kind of, when you came to him, he was sort of a forgotten figure, wasn't he? I mean, can you tell me a bit about how you sort of got onto his trail and where you decided, you know, there's a story here and it's a story that not enough people know. Yes. So I read a brilliant book called Into the Silence by Wade Davis, which is about the early British expeditions to Everest in the 1920s and about the long tail of the First World War, the effects that fighting in France and Flanders had had on that group of men who tried to climb Everest in the 1920s. And it's a wonderful book. And somewhere in that book, there were two paragraphs about Morris Wilson, which adumbrated his story. He tried in 1933 to fly a plane to the Himalayas, get out of his plane, and then to climb to the top. And something about Morris Wilson's story stuck with me. I was working on all sorts of other things, magazine work, another book, But I kept on coming back to Wilson and sometimes I would wake up in the middle of the night thinking about Morris Wilson. (laughs) And so I tried to track down everything that had been written about him. And, you know, there wasn't an awful lot that had been written about him, but there was one book that was written in 1957 by a British journalist called Dennis Roberts, which was a sort of short and I soon realised not particularly accurate book about Wilson's life and motivations and there were various other bits in other Everest histories and not much else. I did know that the Alpine Club held Morris Wilson's diary so I went to read that and the more that I read about Wilson and his world and the world of you know the 1930s attempts on Everest I was completely beguiled by him. You know, he just became this person about whom I had to write in the end. 
it's interesting. You you do talk a little bit about that compulsion. I think you have an, in your introduction. You say you know, quote somebody else, but saying you know, what are we to do with this madman? <laughs> and you talk. I mean, you address yourself, which is an odd tick, and I'm interested in why you do that as you in the book. You know, it's a sort yes. of book where you're talking to yourself. Is that is that to kind of co-op the reader in? What was the thinking behind that? Yeah, to, to get sort of into the weeds. That you know, there are little moments where I confess to biographical doubt and. For some reason, it wouldn't work in the first person. And I could probably go on for quite a long time about why that was. But I, I took a couple of quite big swings at writing this book. It was There was a much longer version of it. And the breakthrough that I had was to show the readers some of the joins. So some of my biographer's doubts, some of the ways in which I came to the story... And I wanted the reader to feel somewhat complicit in that process or involved in that process. And that's where I got to with that second person voice, which I hope is not overused. It is unusual and uh, (laughs) it felt like a high wire act to pull it off. And I hope I have pulled it off to some degree. But it it was a sort of technique and a device that I hoped would draw people into the story of why he became interesting to me now. He is a peripheral figure in Everest history and a minor figure in history in general. But his story was totally absorbing to me and I wanted to show how it had become so. Well, one of the the things you, you know, that for, for those listeners who don't know his story, the outline of his story, I mean, we know he didn't make it. It's yes. probably not a spoiler to say <laughs> that, you know, he's still up there. And he didn't exactly go about it in a sensible way. He didn't really understand how oxygen worked. He didn't bother to learn even the most basic climbing techniques. He wasn't interested in taking any sort of support. He was going to just do it himself in a pair of hobnail boots from the bottom to the top. He was already injured from the war. And he barely knew how to fly a plane when the plan was to land the plane. I mean, was he simply a madman? No. (laughs) But I think he's been written out of history for all those eccentricities that you describe. The thing that became extremely interesting to me were these deep currents of feeling this connection between his wartime service and his need to get to Everest. And what I found in the research for this book was someone who, okay, he could not climb, but he was extremely fit and he had trained himself to endure and he shows on Everest extraordinary powers of endurance. He wasn't a flyer before he bought his plane, but in the end achieves one of the most wonderful flights of the time. You know, he flew 5,000 miles from London to Northern India in stages. You know, there were many celebrated flyers of the era, you know, who had only just been able to achieve that. And he did it after 19 hours of training at Stag Lane Aerodrome in North London. I mean, he, you know, he was an amateur. He did have eccentricities, but he was not a crank in any sense. And I, and I think one of the moments when I realised that his story was actually serious was when I read Reinhold Messner's account of his 1980 Ascent of Everest, which is a wonderful and quite weird book called The Crystal Horizon. And Messner, you know, heralds Wilson as a hero. 
And I thought, well, actually, Reinhold Messler is the greatest high-altitude mountaineer of all time. And he sees something of himself in Wilson. And I wondered whether we shouldn't revisit his story with a little more seriousness. You met Messner, didn't you? I think you say in the introduction. I did. Right? I did. And tell me about that. I mean, what, what did I mean, you discuss? Icy cold, <laughs> icy cold reception I got when I tried to set it up. You know, he doesn't like talking particularly to journalists. Eventually he agreed to meet me. We met at one of his castles. He owns several in the Dolomites. And on the day that we met, you know, in the middle of this, at a sort of table and chair set up in the kind of, you know, keep of this castle in the Dolomites, there were people who were looking at the exhibition that he has, you know, sort of displayed. So paying punters who were, and once they realized that the man himself was there and was talking to a journalist, they started to gather round. And soon this, this conversation that we were having was being listened to by sort of 50 other people um, who would occasionally chip in with their own questions and I had to sort of shush them. Um, he found this all quite amusing because I think he's got a decent sized ego on him. But yes, that was a very weird but quite unforgettable experience with Messner. Did he warm up a bit near... when, he talked about, when he talked about Wilson? He did. He did. And you could sense a kinship. He said, oh, he was alone. He was very alone. And I thought, that's an interesting thing. You know, the thing for Messner was he loved to climb alone. He thought it was the purest form of alpinism. And a lot of this was to do with his rejection of and rejection by the sort of climbing fraternity after his own, you know, travails on Nanga Parbat some years earlier, which I won't go into. But, you know, he lost his brother on Nanga Parbat and, you know, he felt... He felt wrongly, you know, blamed for that incident. And he has a lot of problems with the German climbing establishment, the German-speaking climbing establishment. And so, you know, his loneliness was born out of a kind of private trauma, and, and Wilson's was too. So he has this line in The Crystal Horizon, I'm a fool who with his longing for love and tenderness runs up cold mountains. And I thought that could have been written for Wilson, actually. Well, it is a kind of... It weaves, doesn't it, towards being a sort of existential heroism he has, even if it's not a, you know, pragmatic climbing one. What was it that that gave him that that drive? I mean, there, there are hints in it to do with the class system, to do with his relationship with his family, so, you know, but central to it seems to be in the Great War. I th yes, I, th I think his life would have been completely unremarkable had it not been for the Great War. So he was born into a family of you know where his, his dad had gone from being a factory boy to owning his own mill and you know the other brothers his older brothers had already gone into the textiles business with their dad and middle-class Bradford. Middle Bradford capital of the world's world trade had it not been for the first world war that was his story he was going to be in the textiles trade in Bradford and would probably have had quite a nice bourgeois life as it happened, he went to the front lines, fought with extraordinary bravery, particularly during the spring offensive of 1918. He won a military cross defending his post on a day when half of his battalion was killed and the Germans practically overran the British front lines and he won the military cross for that. Eventually he was shot across the back and the left arm by a machine gunner near Ypres, near Halfar Corner. And when he eventually got home to Bradford, 
the Bradford of his childhood was gone. You know, half the young men were gone. The Pals battalions had been, you know, torched at the Somme. There was one little bit of research that I did where I just did an audit of every single young man of fighting age who lived on his street, Cecil Avenue in Bradford. And of those who'd gone to war, eight had not come back, including, you know, people that he must have been at school with and played sport with. And Bradford looked to him and to other people returning like a town of widows. And I was, you know, it was really interesting to read his contemporaries. So Herbert Reed, you know, who went on to become great art critic and writer in various different genres, um, J.B. Priestley, you know, it's very interesting reading what they said about returning from war. You know, Herbert Reed had this incredible line talking about the dark screen of horror and violation between people who had served and people who had not. And I think Wilson felt a lot of that restlessness common to people who had served in the First World War. And not everyone ended up trying to climb Everest. <laughs> but a lot of people felt like they couldn't stay in England or couldn't stay in Britain. A lot of people felt compelled to travel. A lot of people sort of changed what they thought their life was going to be. And Wilson was certainly in that camp. You talk about the, the sort of disruption to, if you like, civilian life and and the ordinary course of his life one of the things that's sort of very striking before he even starts to think of climbing Everest is that you know he seems to fall in love at the drop of a hat and he's he doesn't come across very well he's rather sort of faithless character he's always bolted you know he marries and then he buggers off and then he marries again (laughs) and he buggers off and he seems to do this three or four times in a row and leaves this sort of wreckage of, of female lives behind him I mean did, did that sour you on him a little bit? Yes. There are times when you just don't like him very much. I think the nadir of my relationship with Wilson is when he gets his new bride out to New Zealand from Bradford only to jilt her pretty much as she arrives in a country 13,000 miles away from where she lives with no, no one else that she knows. And she's forced to sue for divorce and doesn't have enough money for her passage home for another 18 months. I mean, you know, despicable behaviour. It's definitely in the Demerits column. It's definitely, it definitely goes against him. One of the things that you come back to with Wilson is that he does seem to need connection with other people. He needs people to listen to his stories. You know, when he's just about to go to Everest, when he's in Darjeeling, so when he's just before the final stage of his adventure, he befriends a 65-year-old woman, an American woman, wife of a missionary called Mrs. Kitchen. And he walks around town with her and tells her all his stories and his hopes and fears. And, you know, she gives him little gifts and he calls her his girlfriend. It's obviously non-sexual, but it is a relationship of narrative. And his relationship with... Enid Evans, who was his best friend's wife, is actually, even though she was a woman in her 30s, seems quite similar to that. You know, he has problems with conventional relationships. What he needs to be able to do is to tell his stories. And so this is not to let him off the hook in terms of all his bad behaviour, but you do see a someone who is battling with his need to and his inability to 
form normal relationships. It reminded me a little of some of those stories, you know, like the famous climbing stories, like the, you know, the free solo guy, you know, that obsessive sort of thing, or touching the void, where there is a sense that it becomes this kind of the great man who's monomaniacal about this thing, this mountain that they have to climb. And... You know, there's there's always a girlfriend at the bottom of the mountain kind of tearing her hair out, saying, you know, couldn't, couldn't we just go out, go out and have a date? Or, you know, no, sorry, I've got to go climb up this mountain and risk my life. I mean, is that is that part of the mountain climbing thing, do you think? I think that's an element of it. And, you know, all the words that we associate with climbing, you know, conquest and, you know, you, you assault a mountain, don't you? There's all these martial, this martial terminology there is something testosterone driven about it having said that there are lots of terrific women mountaineers maybe less driven by those things but yeah in wilson's case certainly his life became simpler when he had this great prize everest sort of in the distance to aim for all the complications of his life all these relationships he'd ruined and you know all of the bad ideas that he'd had and all of the toing and froing, you know, Mozambique and Canada and New Zealand, all of that was, you know, put to one side because he had this one great thing that was in his sights. So I think in a sense there, the mountain simplified his life. This mission to Everest simplified his life in a way that was quite helpful to him. Was there a parallel, do you think? Because of course, you know, this was all against the background of of more sort of cooperative official well-planned and sort of sensible efforts to climb Everest going on I mean was the quest to summit Everest in some sense a way you know not just for for Wilson to kind of redeem the trauma of the war yeah I he you know one of the interesting things about this is is how he talks about class and officialdom you know Wilson really really loathed being told what to do And part of that is born out of his attempts after the war to get a pension for his wartime injuries. He he wrote six times to the war office saying, I've been shot, I can't move my left arm, I'm owed something. And each time they sent him a letter back saying, no, you're not, you're not considered disabled enough. And from that moment, I think he had a very low opinion of civil servants in London or wherever he found them and officialdom and he took enormous pleasure in this adventure which was to tweak the nose of every single pompous official that he found you know the brits in india and in london you know the air ministry and the people in the india office did not want him to attempt everest they thought it was going to be a diplomatic disaster if he crashed his plane in nepal or did something else you know ostentatiously stupid and they tried at every turn to to stop him and there are these wonderful moments when Wilson gets the better of them so in Bahrain he has promised the local official there that he's going to turn back and fly back home to Iraq and then you know all the way back to England having been refused permission to fly over Persia. So if this is a condition on which they'll refuel his plane, isn't it? They'll refuel his plane yes. as long as, as as long as he goes back. And so he takes off that morning with a plane full of fuel and instead of turning left instead of turning left, he turns right towards, you know, India and Everest. And this fuming official on the ground 
is left there, you know, red-faced and sends off all these angry telegrams. That, for Wilson, would have felt like pure victory, that, that kind of moment. He absolutely loved... Well, the guy says, just... doesn't he, what was I supposed to do, chase him? Yeah. <laughs> it's a magnificent moment. I'm imagining a walk-on part there for kind of Steve Coogan as the um, hapless, you know, official on the ground. But, yeah, it's... Uh, those moments are actually what really warmed me up to Wilson. Yeah. There is a sort of, there is a delicate international issue, isn't there? I mean, as you say, there's the worry about a diplomatic incident. He, you know, Britain's got decent relations with Nepal. And if it's random civilians are suddenly flying into Nepal or, or trekking across it without permission, that can cause a real problem, yeah? Absolutely. I mean, the, the early Everest expeditions, as, you know, there are some brilliant histories of this. They only came about because of these protracted negotiations with Tibet, which is what you, where you had to trek through to get to the north side of Everest. And then later, you know, with Nepal. And often the, you know, there's negotiations involved weapons and, you know, there were complicated kind of multi-pronged negotiations in which, you know, one little carrot for the Brits was having a party of men being able to go to Everest and in which something else would be seeded in the, you know, in the contract. You know, Wilson just rode roughshod over all that and eventually when his plane was impounded so he couldn't fly over Nepal, took matters into his own hand and decided to walk to the foot of the mountain in disguise at night, thereby evading detection. Yeah, I mean, you, you talk about... There's sort of two phases to this, isn't there? Because there's plan A, which is the... You know, he's going to somehow land this aeroplane on the side of Everest and sort of scamper up from there. And that, that just eventually craps out, doesn't it? He can't, he can't make that work. That's right. Yeah, the, his plane gets impounded. You know, having, having bested the authorities most of the way, eventually they just put his plane under lock and key so he can't use it. And he, he needs to find a different way to get to the mountain, which is the way that all the expeditions of the 20s and the expedition in 1933 got there, which is to get to Darjeeling, the hilltop town in northeast India, and then to walk through Sikkim into Tibet, 200 miles to the Rongbuk Monastery and the, and the foot of the mountain, which is what Wilson does eventually. There's a lovely detail of him paying his hotel bill six months in advance. <laughs> yeah, this was the, the idea was that he was going to sneak out at midnight having paid his hotel bill six months in advance because he was being spied on and you know the local authorities didn't want him to sneak into Tibet. I have to say, had I been spying on Wilson, my suspicions would have been raised by the fact that he'd paid his hotel bill six months in advance. But apparently <laughs> it did work because nobody cottoned on for until he was, you know, well on the, on the slopes of Everest. Now, one of the things that you did touch on a second ago, but I think this is kind of a sort of fascinating aspect of his psychological makeup, is this relationship with Enid Evans. Yes. Who's his best friend's wife. And he has, you say it was a sort of maternal confessorial relationship, but there's also the suggestion it was sexual. It was certainly romantic. Romantic, definitely. What I can't prove is whether it was sexual I think it, there was something very strange going on because all three of these pals would hit the nightclubs of London in, you know, 1932. London was quite an exciting place to go out at night. There were all sorts of interesting nightclubs. There was quite a lot of cocaine. There was, you know, kind of quite risque shows going on. And Wilson and the Evans used to go out till 
quite late in the morning to these nightclubs together and then Wilson would crash on the Evans's dressing room floor in Maida Vale in their maisonettes and this relationship between Enid and Wilson was obviously romantic because the letters are absolutely, you know, they're florid and, you know, he's constantly saying, I wish you were here, I'd kiss you and so on. But he's sending these letters back in the same packet as letters for Len. So there's no attempt to conceal what's going on. And you have to assume, I think, that Len assented in some way or was somehow complicit in whatever was going on. So yeah, there is this quite interesting <laughs> dynamic at play there. But yeah, the most fun I had was reading these letters, which a wonderful German mountaineering historian had kept in his basement in Bremen, and which I was able to go and pick up one happy day. Well, it was, it was fantastic you got that cash. There's also this other, I mean, very early on you say, you know, I had this breakthrough. Because you hadn't thought, you know, you thought there's a lot of kind of cold trail here and there are no yeah. collateral descendants. But then you found a great nephew, didn't you? I did. Uh, and Derek he had a whole box in... full of stuff and was waiting for you to show up on his doorstep. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. You know, the, these moments are very rare. Like, as anyone who's researched, you know, anything will tell you. But sometimes someone shows up and they, they have the thing that you're looking for. So... I was almost convinced that nobody, there was no direct descendants of Morris Wilson. But then I discovered that Morris Wilson's brother Fred had remarried and there were two children by that second marriage and one of them survived and he was still alive. And I found his number and gave him a call and I told him who I was and he said, is this about Morris then? And I said, well, yes. And he'd never spoken to <laughs> To anyone else about Morris Wilson, his great uncle. And he said, you know, he invited me round to tea and I got there, this, you know, kind of two up, two down house on the outskirts of Bradford. He invited me in and he brought out a chest from a kind of dining room dresser. And inside were all these wonderful things that I'd never seen, you know, photos I'd never seen, Wilson's military cross, the second half of a poem that Wilson wrote to Enid on his way to Everest that I assumed had been lost forever, you know, marginalia. I was going to say, just judging all... by the section you print, lost forever might have been a good fate for it. I mean, <laughs> the whole thing could have done with burning, but the, but the wonderful thing about that is it shows you, I think, some of Wilson's character. Like that was, it feels like a pure evocation of his voice. But anyway, when, when Derek Carter asked me to, he said, you know, you take photos of these and do with them you know what you want to do and I realized that my hands were shaking when I was taking photos of them because it's not often in quite a lonely and uh, you know tormented research process that you someone just picks up the phone and says yes I've got exactly the thing that you you want that doesn't happen very often but he did say which was you know super dramatic you know I have one secret that I will take to my grave and you say, I think I know what that secret was. Now, is it, was that connected to the marmalade dropping moment about two thirds of the way through the book where you say, oh, yeah, by the way, he may in fact have been a transvestite who was making his trip to the top of the mountain in ladies' underwear, like a sort of J. Edgar Hoover style. <laughs> you know, the average, what? Hold up a moment. Yes. 
Now, if you have, so there have long been rumours in the Mountaineering community that Maurice Wilson was a secret transvestite. And if you have this quite uh, radioactive piece of information or tittle-tattle, whatever you want to call it, about Wilson, it could colour the whole book. So your, your judgment as an author has to be when to deploy that bit of information. And eventually I found the place, I think, to deploy it. But yes, I, I believe that was the secret that he was talking about. It is, I mean, I, I try to give Wilson a fair hearing and then realise that I'm not trying him for a crime. I'm just trying to understand what it was that drove him to Everest. If he were a secret transvestite in the early 30s, that would explain a lot about how he found it difficult to live a conventional life. He does have a string of relationships with people who design women's dresses. He writes an intriguing note in his diary when he's on his way to Everest that he's changed into some short, open-meshed undies. And you sort of think to yourself, that seems like an unusual decision for sub-zero temperatures and, you know, 7,000 metres above <laughs> sea level. So there are all these kind of tantalising clues and there are lots of rumours in the mountaineering community which started in 1935 when his body was found. So I investigate those a little, but I, I didn't, you know, I did what I could, essentially. And was it something come you to... knew when you embarked, I'm interested? I mean, was it something that you set out to write this book knowing there's this as you put it, radioactive, because yeah, for better or know. for worse, it could potentially throw a kind of essentially slightly comical spin. I mean, it shouldn't necessarily, of course, but it ends up doing so. I mean, did you think, yeah. I've, I've got to try and do this a different way? Or I did, know, I did know that about him. So I did know that the rumours existed. And I thought that was probably the reason why his story had not been told with any real vigour since that 1957 book because you know essentially people thought he was laughable and I thought well even if if that is true if the transvesticism rumors are true he's not a laughable figure he's you know misguided and bullheaded and and many other things confounding in lots of different ways but he's you know he still did this extraordinary expressive thing and I'd love to know more about him. So I've, I felt that it was worth investigating, but it wasn't something that I wanted to colour the whole book. No, do, do you buy it, though? Because, I mean, it, it, you know, just in your judgment, as you say, it's hard to, hard to say for sure, but it's obviously going to be a very important part of his psychological makeup if that's one of the things that, that drove him. I mean, do you...? Yeah, I think I do, actually. I think I do, because he, his delight in dress-up is evident when you read his letters. Like the moments when he really comes alive in his letters to Enid is when he's describing his, um, you know, his outfit, his his disguise. It's not, you know, women's disguise, but it's, you know, his love of being someone else. He and Enid also had this strange, you know, affection for Fortnum and Mason. Not strange because there's anything wrong with the shop, but strange, you know, that was their special place. And they used to kind of scoot off there for liaisons and you sort of wonder what they were doing and which departments they visited there. He was accepted by Len Evans in a way that makes me think, you know, there was something out of the ordinary about what Wilson needed from that relationship. 
So for, for quite a few different reasons, I, I think it is somewhat convincing and would lend a certain kind of psychological, you know, adds another layer of depth to him. I don't think it explains his quest to climb Everest fully. And but in yeah, terms of mores of the time, it isolates him in a way that it wouldn't. It does isolate him. Nowadays. Yeah, I could see how he found it difficult to live a conventional life. Uh, can I ask, I mean, you, you do talk about how this story really appealed to you. It's mountain, you know, do you, having researched it, having lived inside this guy's head, you know, do you find yourself, I mean, maybe you're already someone who likes to climb mountains, but do you find yourself thinking, I've got to go to the top of Everest, I've got, you know, I mean, do you, do you understand or respond to that call in his character? I understand it. I have not, as yet, signed up on a mission to get to Everest. I did think about trying to do the trek from Darjeeling to Everest and then to get as far as the North Pole in, you know, in his footsteps. But that is a commitment of, you know, months and huge expense. But I understand the appeal entirely, but perhaps that impulse is directed differently for me. You know, I like, you know, running and, and other kind of endurance events. But yeah, I do see the I do see the appeal of it. You know, Wilson saw the mountain as totally within him. I would just see I would see a lot more risk, I think. You know, I feel you know, it's things change for you in terms of risk when you have small children. I still, you know, like to think that I have a kind of healthy attitude towards risk. But you're not going to find me trying the Mummery Ridge, or, you know, or going to Sula Grande any time to, to do some ex extremely risky climb. Well, you say at the end of the, the book that in the course of writing it, or in the course of, you know, researching and living with this guy's story, you know, you've acquired two children and a degree of adult life you didn't quite have when you started. Did that shift, you know, did you sort of walk around the obelisk a bit in the process of, of writing it? Did it shift your view of it and him? Yeah, I just, I don't know, there was a period in my life when I used to cover some conflict, you know, for magazines, so I'd, particularly in, in Central and Eastern Africa. And there was a period when I was kind of 36 and I was in the Central African Republic covering the civil war there, which was particularly nasty. And a teenager or someone shot at me from not very far away. And I had a really clear thought, what am I doing? I've got an 18-month-old child at home and you know that was a really clarifying moment for me I was you know like 36 which same age as Wilson is, was when he was uh, attempting to climb Everest you know it puts those risky dangerous activities in perspective it doesn't make me think he's any more stupid for having tried them but I, I do feel like they belong to a certain time in your life and Wilson certainly was, you know, he in his mid thirties was kind of examining what he was doing with his life, and I, and yeah, it, it, I think it was helpful to kind of go through a period of maturing as I was writing the book. Well, your your Everest is getting the book finished anyway. <laughs> Ed Caesar, thank you very much indeed for your time. The Moth and the Mountain is out now, and I highly recommend it. Thank you so much, Sam. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast 
at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode.